Hello and welcome to Health Inequality Insights, the podcast that's all about exploring the critical issues surrounding health inequalities. My name is Dr. Akib Hussain, and in today's episode, we're shining a spotlight on migrant health. And joining me today is Dr. Hiba Dalha, who's the GP and the clinical lead for the asylum and refugee patient cohort within a very busy PCN in Luton. She herself oversees the care providers and runs focus clinics for this patient group. I'd like to welcome you, Hiba. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me, Akib. We're all eager for you to share your insights into migrant health. But before that, Hiba, we'd love to hear about your personal journey as a GP and what drew you into working with this patient group. Well, I've been one of those individuals who from a very young age knew that they wanted to become a doctor and a general practitioner in particular. My interest towards asylum seekers and the refugees uh, grew after hearing a lot in the news when the UK started accepting refugees. I, I was very interested in knowing their journey especially after it was brought to my attention that uh, there are a lot of lot of health inequalities surrounding this cohort. So I wanted to do something about it. And fortunately, I had the chance because of uh, my practice, which is a PCN in itself. And uh, that's how I started working for the asylum seekers and the refugee patients. Mm. How long have you been working in this role now? I have been working in this role for the past uh, three years. A bit more than three years. And how have you found it? Very interesting. I love working with this cohort because it comes with challenges. It comes with uh, uh, different interventions that you need to think of, that that you need to bring into practice. And also, it sounds like that it's quite rewarding in terms of working with this patient cohort. Um, Yes, I would say when you see that your intervention has actually brought some kind of change in patients' life or circumstances, it's definitely very, very rewarding. Lovely to see how committed you are in the work that you do. Before we go on to speak about the challenges that this patient group faces, I think it'd be useful if we went over a few definitions and key points about the asylum seekers and refugee group. There's a huge number of global migration that occurs and people migrate for various reasons, both positive and negative. So when we think about migration, we think about things like opportunity, poverty, conflict, violence. uh, And these are just like some of the reasons why people may migrate. So I think understanding the terminology is useful. So if we break it down, a refugee is someone who has fled beyond the borders of their country and are unable or unwilling to return due to a genuine fear of persecution. And that fear uh, can stem from many reasons, such as race, religion, nationality or political opinion. And then mm-hmm. there's the term asylum seekers. Mm-hmm. And that's an individual who has fled their country and made an application to be recognised as a refugee in that country, but mm-hmm. has not yet been granted status. Yeah. Just some facts and figures which I've taken. So these are the latest government immigration statistics for September 2023, which is taken from refugeecouncil.org. There's 75,000 applications for asylum which were made in the last 12 months, which is up from 1% in the previous year. And the top five countries of origin of people seeking asylum were from Afghanistan, Iran, Albania, India and Iraq. And it's I think it's important to mention this. And Hiba, you can comment on this as well, because later on in the podcast, we'll be talking about common health conditions that we tend to see. And where patients tend to originate from, we tend to see different health conditions. Yeah, I agree. And I know, Hiba, you work in a PCN that specifically caters to the asylum seeker and refugee patient group. But if we compare it on like a more global scale, the the UK itself ranks 20th in Europe for the number of asylum applications per head of population. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, for our trainees out there, it may be something that they may come across in their own line of work. Mm 
I think so regarding the trainees when or anyone who comes across these patients a holistic approach plays a vital role in their management which should not only be clinical but non-clinical as well yeah no I, I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head there when we do think about providing care to this patient group we do need to think about holistic care that's not just about their physical needs but also social situation as well as mental health as well Mm-hmm. Hiba, we'd be curious to learn more about in terms of the specifics of the work that's done in primary care. If we link it back to the work that you do at your PCN, could you shed some light on some of the local statistics and the journey of these patients into primary care and how they go about accessing care? Yes, yeah, so most of the patients who are registered with our PCN, they're mostly located in three to four hotels. So in the hotels, they generally have a key worker allocated by the home office who provides this information to them. The key worker aware about RPCN that we are looking after the asylum seekers, so they automatically encourage them or uh, let us know and we start the registration process for these patients. Once they're registered with our practice, they are brought in for baseline blood tests and we take into consideration about the different demographics and we try to... Uh, include some diseases that are prevalent in those countries as well as a baseline blood test for them, which is followed by a GP review, which is normally myself. And I ask them about their journey, what happened, what kind of inequalities are they facing there, what kind of challenges are going on. And we've got a lot of of facilities, especially in the community, which we can can ask uh, for them to get involved in catering for this cohort, like arranging um, recreational activities for them, or arranging talking therapies for them, or arranging for community projects for them, voluntary work for them. So I have come across quite a few organizations who are uh, uh, basically working on non-profit organizations, I would say, who have been specially developed to cater the needs for the asylum seekers, providing them with clothes, providing them with foods, providing them with blankets in the winter. Are these non-profit organizations based locally within Luton? Yes, they are based locally in Luton. It's a walk-in. Apart from that, there is a recreational activity schedule which has specially been developed for the asylum seekers where they could get involved in boxing classes, uh, there's a gaming night, there is um, there's a swimming class that happens once a week. And it, and this is something that happens Monday to Sunday. What's the name of, of this non-profit organisation that you were referring to that provides these additional services? So there's a non-profit organisation called Trinity. It's a walk-in service. So just to summarise some of the key points which you mentioned, Hippa, In Luton, there are three hotels where the asylum seeker and refugee patients are housed. There are key workers based at these hotels that have knowledge about our PCN and the work that we do with the asylum refugee patient group. They then help facilitate contact so these patients can be registered at the practice. Once registered, they undergo a health check, which includes a baseline blood test that also has additional tests that screens for more for certain conditions which may be more prevalent in the country they've come from. Um, So I guess what comes to mind would be certain blood tests for viruses such as hepatitis C, B and HIV, as well as other conditions such as tuberculosis. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. And just at that point about registration, before I forget, I wanted to add that refugee and asylum seekers with an active application or appeal are entitled to free NHS care. And that's both in primary and secondary care. Quite useful to know. A lot of patients who may come and see you may be worried about having to pay. 
and I just want to expand on the journey of how patients are housed in these accommodations. So individuals travel to the UK seeking asylum. They request asylum at the port of entry or after entering the UK. Usually the Home Office carries out a screening interview and there is an option to apply for accommodation and financial support. They are then housed in initial accommodation centres where they can register with a GP practice and undergo health assessment similar to what you mentioned Hiba. Uh, and then they may be dispersed across the country to more long-term housing. So I've touched upon this very lightly, but Hiba, what other conditions do you tend to screen for in this patient group? So because of the different demographics that they come from, we tend to test them for hepatitis B, hepatitis C, HIV mm. and tuberculosis. And in Luton, I understand that there's a TB screening program. Yes, there is. Could you tell us a bit more about that? So the Luton TB screening program is run by the TB clinic, which is based in the community. And it is staffed by a consultant who is based at the hospital. They generally set up those clinics at the hotels or at some different locations. And they let the hotels know in advance so that the asylum seekers could be brought there and the TB test could be carried out. But this is something that is carried out for all the asylum seekers and the refugees as soon as they're identified and registered at a practice. This is a community service that's set up by secondary care that patients can go from primary care and be referred into that for them to have TB screening. Yes, it is. Can hotels directly enter this community clinic? Can patients um, directly or do they have to register with the GP first before they can attend these clinics? Um, normally, the TB clinics set up their the TB uh, clinics. They normally set up their remote clinics either at the mm -hmm. hotels or elsewhere. Uh, the patient does not necessarily have to be registered with a GP, but it's ideal to be registered with a GP because, in case the TB test results come back positive, then they need to have some mm -hmm. kind of intervention done, which would be arranged by the secondary care. But on top of that, there are a lot of other health issues that needs to be addressed where the secondary care might not be able to help that much. And that's where the role of the GP comes. OK, well, you know, that's been really helpful here. But I mean, it's given us a clearer picture of the landscape in primary care. I'd like to just ask if you can share some insights into the specific challenges that these patients encounter, uh, namely like access and care and equally the challenges that you as a healthcare provider face in delivering this care to them. I think the biggest challenge that the asylum seekers and the refugees face after entering this country is the language barrier. And I think that this is the biggest challenge that they face. And after that, there are a lot of health inequalities that surround this cohort. With them is, uh, is the follow-ups as well. Uh, for example, if um, because they, most of them are residing in a hotel and they get minimal amount of money from the government, um, if uh, they need to be brought into the practice, normally the, a taxi service or a transport service is arranged by the hotel, but that generally needs some time in advance before it could be booked. Mm -hmm. So you can't bring them on the same day if there's something going on. And that sometimes has resulted in home visits where I have gone to them and seen them and, and, and catered their needs, basically. So, yeah. yeah, these are some of the challenges. Yeah, language barrier is something to take into account as well as a difficulty in navigating the UK system and the NHS. Um, also, just to add to that, when we are thinking about the challenges that are faced by this patient group, it's important to look at the whole picture. Health issues may be caused by experiences prior to leaving their country, the journey to the UK or after arrival in the UK. And for many, the journey itself involves crossing the channel in small boats, which carries risk and causes trauma, as there's no legal way to enter the UK just to seek asylum.
Yeah. And as a result, these individuals may develop um, post-traumatic stress disorder or other mental health conditions. Also, when we think about asylum seekers, it's not always family and adults that are coming for safety. 41% of displaced individuals across the world are children and addressing the mental health needs in this patient group can be very difficult. Um, you know, I previously mentioned that the top five countries of origin of people seeking asylum, you'll note that none of them have English as their mother tongue. So providing mental health support with a language barrier adds another level of complexity. And then if we think about if we think beyond mental health, there are other health challenges which include uh, untreated communicable diseases, so such as TB and parasitic infections, uh, chronic conditions which are poorly controlled. And this is something which I've seen in my clinics. Um, patients present with poorly controlled blood pressure, diabetes and chronic wounds that haven't been properly tended to. I mean, this is not an exhaustive list, but these are common challenges that this patient group faces. Um, in, in your practice, but is there anything else that you tend to see more in this patient group? There are a lot of things. I mean, most of the most of the things that they present with is related to their journeys have basically impacted not only on their physical health, but their mental health as well. Yeah, I mentioned about post-traumatic stress disorder, but it's also important to consider other mental health conditions such as depression and anxiety and those that may not have been diagnosed yet due to difficulties in accessing care in their home countries. I think it's also important to note that just because these individuals have arrived into the UK that their mental health improves. Um, you need to remember that many would have left family and friends behind which would result in ongoing anxiety and worries. Just moving on from that, I think communication is really important. Patients, they may be unfamiliar with the way the health service is organised in the UK so they might be expecting direct referrals to specialties or secondary care without being aware of the strengths of a GP in terms of managing their chronic conditions and I think mm -hmm. communication when they have that uh, you know initial consultation with you is quite important mm -hmm. to have with them just to help them understand how the NHS works and what is the purpose of primary care and how we go on to uh, continue the care that they provide in secondary care. Yes uh, the patients who have come in with chronic diseases they were managed very differently in their home countries and uh, when they come here, we we go through all the medications that they were on. We take a very detailed history from them and we try to manage them as per the UK guidelines, which then becomes a challenge as well, because uh, for the patient, it seems like you're questioning the, the doctors who were administering those medications to them for years. And now you're randomly changing it. Yeah, that's why using an interpreting service to communicate is really important so patients are aware of what is being done and why. Um, and just to add two, two other things that I think is important to note, one is about screening with HIV, TB and Hepatitis C. When we are screening for these conditions, uh, we should take extra time to communicate to the patients to prevent undue distress because there might be stigma associated with certain conditions and patients may be fearful of uh, wanting to be assessed. Uh, mm. And also they may not want to get tested because they feel that it will impact on their asylum application. So I think, you know, mm. taking that time to really explain to them the importance of screening and why we're doing blood tests and why we're doing these investigations. Yeah. And then the, the second thing I wanted to add, add a talk about was vaccination. Yeah. You know, in the UK, we have a vaccination program, but many other countries might not have a vaccination program. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's important to try and find out about the vaccination refugee and asylum seekers have received and identify any they, they may be missing. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, there's a really good resource that uh, I tend to refer to about vaccination, and I'll share it in the podcast description. It's a one-page guidance from a .gov website that offers advice on vaccinating individuals with uncertain or incomplete immunization status. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, normally in our, in our PCN, our nurses are quite competent in that. So as soon as we've got a looked after child asylum seeker and an adult asylum seeker, when they come in for the blood test, they automatically check for their vaccination status as well. Most of these individuals have not brought their vaccination cards with them. So it's just um, um, it's just testing from their memory what vaccinations they have. But we try to do our best to make them up to date with all the vaccinations possible. Yeah, just the vaccination part we wanted to uh, touch upon. The the other thing, um, I mean, Hiba, you talked about this already in terms of barriers to accessing care and how we can address them. So you talked about language barriers and using interpretation service. Are there mm-hmm. any other barriers that you see when you provide care to the patient group and how do you overcome them? Navigating through NHS is a big barrier for them as well. Uh, understanding about nominated pharmacies, as understanding about repeat dispensed medications, how to get medications on a monthly basis. But luckily, the key workers at the hotels are able to help with us with that. Apart from that, I've got a, we've got a key worker at our practice as well who helps us in navigating that information or making the patients understand that information because of the time limitations that we have in our consultations. Talked about the two main ones there. One is the language barrier and the use of an interpretation service, and two, mm-hmm. uh, length of appointments. Um, when you are providing care to this patient group, you have to factor in that additional time in terms of using an interpreter. So a 10-minute consultation may not be able to achieve much at all, and you might need to have a longer uh, appointment slot for them. Yes. And another area that I was thinking about is, is a financial barrier. So asylum seekers, they are banned from working. And yes. the government support amounts to just under seven pounds a day. And that's supposed to cover all basic necessities. And if you mm-hmm. think about it, I mean, seven pound is not much at all. Mm-hmm. So you, there is that low income scheme. Asylum seekers and refugees can can get free prescriptions, dental treatments, eye tests, um, and that's using the HC2 certificate. So mm-hmm. patients are not aware of this you can mention to them about the HC2 certificate and also I think it's important to think about accessibility I mean if patients are being referred for community services and they have to get across town they're going to have to pay transport costs so if they've only got seven pounds a day a bus fare can set them back so they may not engage with the service so it's really important to think about that as well yes brilliant thank you so much Hiba. it's been really great having you on the show today and for you to share your insights and experiences about the work that you do thank you Akir. thank you for thank you for inviting me not at all just as a final note before we wrap up but you touched upon this as well that actually you've been saddened uh, some of the times when you talk when you hear the stories of these patients coming to the uk and the difficulties that they've faced and i wanted to talk about Exposure to disturbing accounts can be emotionally challenging and it can lead to burnout as well as what we call vicarious trauma, uh, mm-hmm. which are the occupational challenges for those working in situations when there is continuous exposure to victims of trauma and violence. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's really important to recognise and know where to receive support in helping deal with this. Yeah. Uh, so for trainees, I would recommend you know bringing this up, um, bringing the issues up during your debrief session so you can be supported and mm-hmm. for others to form a support network where you can support one another. And I don't know, Hiba, if you had any further advice about this. 
I agree with you that I agree with you on that, Akib. Um, initially, when I started looking after this cohort, I felt very overwhelmed because I thought that the story of one individual was the worst till I heard the story of the second individual and the third individual. And it actually made me feel very low and it was affecting my personal life because I brought that home with me. And the difference could be noted by my family and later on by my colleagues at work. But luckily, I, I work at a very supportive PCN and a practice where I can easily reach out to other GPs if I need any help. And I confided in a few in a few of my close friends um, in the practice were GPs as well. And I was brought and I was uh, made aware about different organizations within the PCN who offers support to the GPs who are dealing with a lot of uh, trauma coming from the patients and things like that. So I was lucky in that. Yeah, brilliant. No, thank you so much. But I think it's really important to highlight that. And so I just want to add that the BMA also provide a well-being and support service for doctors and medical students, um, which is worth exploring. And I'll I'll share the link in the podcast description. Mm-hmm. Um, but one, thank you so much, Hiba. It's been really, really great having you here today. Thank you so much, Akeb. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Health Inequality Insights. If you'd like to learn more about health inequalities and some of the issues discussed in this podcast, then do join our future NHS page by searching for nationalheft at future.nhs.uk and our Twitter page by searching for at nationalheft. All resources discussed in this episode can be found in the description to this podcast. If any of you have any questions or suggestions or would like to get involved with the podcast, then please do email us at nationalheft at gmail.com. Thank you for joining us and until next time.